in our trek through the Psalms. We're turning now to Psalm 135. So if you have a Bible, you can join me. And while you're turning there, let me say what a subordinate point of this message is, not the main point, so that you can be alert to it. I won't make much of it, but since this is Bethlehem College and Seminary, I'm thinking methodologically a lot when I think about you, that is how you come to truth, know truth. And here's one subordinate methodological driving principle that I hope remains at the foundation of our education for centuries if Jesus tarries. Namely, that it is not bold and courageous to oppose sacred tradition by finding contradictions in the Bible. Sometimes people will be described as, he's a courageous scholar, and, he, and then he says something negative about the Bible, or he points out a contradiction, and therefore he's courageous, and he's bold to find contradictions. My assessment of that is that it's not courage, it's laziness, and a failure to go deep for the unity that is there. It will make a superficial institution of higher learning if we opt for the cheap solution of finding contradictions instead of saying, if I work long enough and hard enough with all my might and as much help as I can get by the Holy Spirit, I can find the unity beneath this apparent problem. And then you might take five years of labor or 20 instead of just cheaply tossing it off, writing your essay, being hailed as courageous, and, and then on to some other superficial observation. So that's a, a sub-point is this institution will be a deep, strong, unshakable institution that sees vastly more in the Bible than those see who quickly, cheaply, under the name of courage, solve a problem by saying, oh, I guess the contradiction. Chapter 135 in the book of Psalms, first six verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Oh, give praise, servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel, as His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. For whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, and on earth, and in the seas, and all deeps. And we're going to focus all of our attention on verse 6 and other parts of it that try to make sense out of verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and all deeps. 
One of the great and unfathomable implications that God is three in one, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that God is and always has been and always will be supremely happy in the fellowship of the Father with the Son through the Spirit. And the implication of that exuberant, eternal happiness that He's never been lonely, He's never been out of sorts, He's never been frustrated, is that God is not constrained by anything outside Himself to do what He does. If He had deficiencies, then He might have to seek outside Himself to get something fixed so that then He could do what He really likes to do but is not able to do. God is complete and exuberantly happy, overflowing with satisfaction in the fellowship of the Trinity, and therefore He's free in all His actions. He does whatever He pleases. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in, in the seas. The psalm begins by telling us to praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, and then in verse 3, he starts to give reasons for why we should praise the Lord. Like verse 3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. And then it comes to another reason, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. We should praise the Lord. You are free. You do all that pleases you. You are never constrained. No one has your arm behind your back. You're never coerced. You're never cornered. You're always a Vesuvius of overflowing good pleasure, which is why the the Bible, like Ephesians 1, says He acts according to the good pleasure of His will, the eudakia of His thelema. He acts according to that. And it says the same in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 146, verse 10, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, Same word in noun form in Isaiah 46, 10, all my good pleasure as in the verb form what pleases him in Psalm 135. So he accomplishes everything according to his good pleasure. He is sovereign and he is free and he is never coerced by anything outside himself. That's what verse 6 teaches. Now that's a, a problem. And the problem can be seen most clearly perhaps by consulting what looks to be the opposite truth in Ezekiel chapter 18. So it goes like this, Ezekiel 18 verse 30, God is warning the house of Israel of impending judgment, and He says, verse 30 of Ezekiel 18, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord, and then He urges them to repent like this, repent and turn from all your transgressions. And then verse 31, why will you die, O house of Israel? For I do not have pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. 
So this seems like a very different picture from Psalm 135, verse 6. I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does all that he pleases. And you might try to solve that apparent problem by saying, well, it's not a problem because he doesn't do that. He doesn't kill the wicked. Yes, he does. And it's right here in the psalm, and it's all over the Bible. Look at verses 8 to 11 where he's unpacking now the freedom of God to do all that pleases him in Psalm 135. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt? Every one of those firstborn, both man and beast. Who smote the great nations and slew mighty kings? Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. God did. So, God takes the life of unrepentant people, millions of them. It is the Lord who gives life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Life and death are in the hand of the Lord. That's not the solution to the problem, to say he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, no, he doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, he does. He puts the wicked to death. And he says, I don't delight in it. And Psalm 135, 6 says he delights in everything he does. He only does what he delights in. So, we have one of these frequent tensions to think about. Many Christians today, they don't stumble over this because they have a view of God that isn't troubled by God being cornered or having to do things he doesn't want to do. It's a simple category for them. And I can easily imagine somebody saying here that that's, that's the case. He does whatever he pleases, and he doesn't please that. I don't think Psalm 135.6 will allow that. They might say, oh, it's just a figure of speech. Like, he, he does whatever he pleases. He doesn't carry the sense of delight and, and the sense of pleasure in doing everything he does. It's just kind of a figure of speech. And then they would imply, really, if God does something like the death of the wicked, he doesn't have any pleasure in it at all. He only grieves over that part of what he does. Okay, so that won't work either because of Deuteronomy 28.63. Moses warns of judgment on unrepentant Israel in a way that's extremely striking. He says this. This is Deuteronomy 28:63. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you 
and destroying you. So there's no thought here that in the death of the wicked, God only grieves. This is crystal clear. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. So now we have the inescapable picture of Ezekiel 18. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And we have Deuteronomy and we have Psalm 135 saying he delights in everything he does, and in particular, he delights in bringing ruin upon unrepentant, rebellious sinners. So, what your education is about, among many things, and I think it's, it's right at the center of your education, is as you look at the world, and as you look at the Word, you are shrewd and you see these things and you don't sweep them under the rug. You see them. You see them more than the opponents of Christianity see them. I remember Dr. Hubbard, the president of Fuller one time when he was answering questions, he pointed out to us, he said, I've almost never been in a situation of students who raise problems that are more serious than the ones I have. And as a student, I thought they're, really, that's, that's remarkable. Because you're in your 50s and, and you're still a Christian. You should, you should out-see and out-think the rest when it comes to your holy book. They shouldn't see things you don't see. You should have seen that a long time ago. And then devote effort. Same thing in the world. If you see a, a situation and an emotion here, maybe in your spouse, and then three days later here, and they don't make any sense, you don't throw it up and say, I'm married to two people. He said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to live according to knowledge with this woman or man. This is life. Life is seeing inconsistencies and using this holy instrument by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to go down to the deep root of her personality or the Bible's unity. That's your job. That's what education is. We are here to help you do that. So let me venture a proposal for this particular instance. Um, the death and the misery of the unrepentant is in and of itself viewed as death and misery alone, isolated from all other things as sad to God, tragic to God, grievous to God, and he does not delight in it. God is not a sadist. God is not malicious or bloodthirsty. Instead, when a rebellious, unbelieving person is judged, what God delights in is righteousness and justice 
and the vindication of truth and the vindication of goodness and the vindication of His own glory. In other words, God can view an event from these different sides and see in it something horrific. You can grieve the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Grieve Him. He's God. And from another angle, God can look upon that event and say, I ordained it for these holy purposes over which I rejoice with infinite approval and delight. God can see things that way. So can you in some measure. There are instances and experiences in your life not unlike that as you look at the same event which from one angle looks so undesirable and from another angle exactly right. So I'm arguing that the solution to this problem is God's capacity to view the death of the wicked from these different angles and grieve, take no pleasure in it for itself, viewed that way. But there's another way to look at it, the narrow lens and the broad lens, in which he steps back, approves of his behavior with infinite approval and delight because it was vindicating truth and goodness and honor and glory and justice and righteousness, and His glory was being displayed in its fullness. He is not, therefore, miserable in this world. Those who have rebelled against the Lord and move beyond repentance are not able to gloat that they have made the Almighty miserable or robbed Him of His joy. Or to put it another way, Satan will not be able to rejoice through all eternity that at least he has robbed God of His joy because people are in hell that God put there. This truth of Psalm 135.6 pulls that possibility out of the devil's hand. He can't say, well, at least I've got a frustrated God because I've got so many of his creatures down here. No, no, you don't have that power over him. God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. So, let this be a warning to us this morning. God is not mocked. He is not trapped or cornered or coerced. Even at the one point in history where it seemed that God was doing something He hated, namely putting His Son to death, what does the Bible say? Comes close to saying in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, that sounds like 
And that was really hard for God to do, and it was. That language, he did not spare his own son, shows the immensity of God's sacrifice. But what does Isaiah 53.10 say? It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Well, that's not a very helpful translation, is it? Because the word will is exactly the same word as all those other words, namely hafetz, delight. Which is why the King James Version does translate Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He did not spare his own son. This was a hard thing to see the holy, perfect, righteous, blameless, infinitely precious Son of God spit upon and tortured and killed was not a pleasure in and of itself. And it pleased God to do it. So right at the heart, we're not, this is not a peripheral thing to our faith, what I'm talking about. This is why the doctrine of God's sovereignty, to me, is not something out here to be dispensed with. It's right at the center. What happened on the cross? Was God arm-wrestled into the giving of the Son? Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. Was it his infinite good pleasure? It was his infinite good pleasure. So right at the center of our life, our theology, our Bible, is this paradox. How does Paul describe the death of the Son of God and Jesus' willingness to endure it in Ephesians 5, 2? He calls it, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It smelled sweet to God as he suffered. And he did not delight in the screams of his son as pain, as torture, as sin. He just ordained that it be, and he did it with all his might and approval. It was his good pleasure to bruise the Son, just like Isaiah said. And what about Jesus himself on the way to Calvary? Was he constrained? Was he saying, Father, the last thing on earth I'm going to do is this, but if you make me... Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and if I lay it down, I can take it again. I am totally free. I'm not being constrained. I have legions at my access. For the joy that is set before me, I will walk through this. It is my good pleasure. 
not the pain. It wouldn't be pain if it was pleasure. Pain is pain. The screams were screams. The agony was agony. And the mind was, yes, yes, yes. This is exactly why I choose what I want, what I will. This is my delight. This is my good pleasure. All things considered. It's not a peripheral thing. So let us stand in awe and wonder this morning. And let us tremble that not only does our praise of God's sovereignty, but our salvation hangs on Psalm 35, 135, verse 6. Our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are our God. You are mysterious to us. You, you have given us enough to give us trajectories of thought on which lie precious remedies to our brain's confusion. But we see through a glass dimly. We know you have the last word. We submit ourselves to your holy word and to these glorious truths in them. And I pray for these students now that they will make it a lifelong vocation not to cheaply, quickly, lazily solve problems by calling them contradictions and moving on to another bold discovery. But that they will labor over your holy word, submit their hearts and minds wholly to its authority, and go down deeper than they would ever be able to go any other way to find the root of unity underneath their perplexities. And for this one, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you do not delight in the death of the wicked, but that you do, in fact, do everything that pleases you, including put the wicked to death. This gives us a way to relate to people. This gives us a way to manage our lives, which are so paradoxical as we experience them. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.